the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. We call the last two weeks of Lent Passion Tide because we focus on the passion and cross, the suffering of our Lord. We veil the statues and pictures in the church as Jesus hid himself from his adversaries in the gospel, so the image of the life-giving crucifix is hidden from our view until Good Friday. The holiness of the saints, which is a result of the passion, is likewise taken from view. We do not say Gloria Patri after the Psalms and Canticles until um, Easter comes. It's a hard habit to break. We're saying the daily office because it comes out so naturally. And just when we get used to it, Easter's already here, but that's the tradition. And these things help to make our meditation on the Passion more austere and solemn. The Gospel tells us who Jesus is. Quote, before Abraham was, I am. I am is a name God gave himself when he revealed the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So Jesus is saying, I am the person who gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. The epistle tells us what Jesus came to do. Quote, by his own blood he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Together they sum up the essence of Passion Tide. It is an encounter with Jesus the Son of God, that reveals our sin and leads us to repentance and forgiveness and new life through the cross. The lessons highlight the tension between the attraction we feel to God's grace and the contrary reticence and fear we feel about the authority of Jesus as the Son of God. We are drawn to the promise of mercy and forgiveness. But we are made uneasy by the truth that confession is required. I am is not a consumer choice. Martin Thornton describes this as a tension between sucker and demand. Sucker, quote, come to me. All ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Demand. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. People try to avoid the demand by attacking the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. Some try to prove that Jesus isn't who the Bible says he is. This has been a scholarly, quote-unquote, scholarly pursuit for the last few hundred years. The 20th century saw the, quote, search for the historical Jesus, who it turns out always turned out not to be the biblical one. Some people try to explain that Jesus didn't really say or mean all the difficult things the Bible says he said. It is instructive in revealing that people always try to explain away the difficult sayings that challenge us 
No one ever objects to all the sayings of Jesus that make us feel good and comforted. Some people object to the divinity of Christ by saying, how can Jesus be Lord of all when there is so much suffering in the world? This objection is overplayed. After all, the Bible portrays the people of God as a suffering community, gives us the book of Job and the suffering servant of Isaiah, among many other things, and comes to fruition in the cross and passion of our Lord, God's Son. The doctrine of the fall of man that the Bible presents to us remains the most plausible explanation for the suffering that is in the world. And the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ remains the most plausible answer to it. We attack the claim that before Abraham was, I am, because it threatens our autonomy. If he truly is the Son of God, then we must do what he says to do. It is easier to deny his identity and authority than it is to repent. Most of our intellectual doubts are really moral doubts in disguise. We are comfortable with our unfaithful patterns of living and we don't want to change. So we offer intellectual objections to avoid the challenge presented by the Son of God. A promiscuous culture is challenged by Jesus' call to sexual purity. It is easier to claim that Jesus is just one religious voice among many than it is to repent and begin to glorify God in our bodies. A wealthy culture is threatened by the claim that Jesus is the owner of everything we have. It is easier to complain about suffering and injustice in the world than it is to repent of our service to mammon and to work to make sure that what we do and make glorifies God and is good and then give to those who are in need. If we are honest, we will admit that we are in the process of becoming obedient to the Son of God and his commandments. We have made progress in some areas, and we are not quite there yet in others. This is the reason we have a thing called the life of prayer in which we practice spiritual disciplines, and this is the reason for a season like Lent. We are growing into the people God made us to be in baptism through faith. We, quote, look for the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come when this process will be fully and finally completed. However, if we are honest, we will admit that the issue is our weakness, not any ambiguity about who Jesus is or what he requires of us. 
It is honest when we confess our struggles and pray for God's grace to help us change and grow. However, it is quite another thing when we justify our disobedience by claiming there is some lack of clarity about who Jesus is or what he wants us to do. We will only desire God's will when we actually believe that God's will is what is best for us. We are generally most discontented in the very areas of our lives in which we have resisted God's will the most. We know by our own life experience that our own way isn't working, but we are determined to stay our course of rebellion nonetheless. God lets us have what we want until we are willing to let him begin to change us. The central issue is trust, which is synonymous with faith. We are saved by faith, which means we are saved by trust. Do we really trust Jesus? Do we really believe that God is good and that what he commands us to do is what is best for us and is for our good? Disobedience is distrust. And distrust takes us back to the old conversation with the serpent in the garden. Did God really say not to do that? He only keeps that from you because he does not want you to have some good thing. It was and is a lie. And we will remain captive to our disordered patterns of behavior and to our fallen state of guilt, shame, fear, and hiding from God, as long as we continue to believe it. We complete our Lenten disciplines by making a good confession. A good confession acknowledges the areas of life where we do not yet say with full conviction, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In Lent, we ask Jesus to reveal to us what is really going on within our hearts, and we listen for the season of Lent for an answer. In Passion Tide, the last two weeks of Lent, we begin to turn what we have heard, what God has said to us, into a narrative of confession. The point of confession is not the confession per se. The point is that Honesty about ourselves, combined with a renewed trust in Jesus, opens the door for us to experience the power of his resurrection in new ways. The good news is that the whole purpose of the authority and sacrifice of Jesus is to lead us through the cross to Easter and the resurrection and new life. As the epistle says, quote, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your consciences from dead works to serve the living God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.